All right. If you've got your Bible, please open it up to Romans chapter 16. Um, I let you know last week that we'd be taking two weeks off of our exposition through 1 Corinthians. Uh, that doesn't mean we take a week off from exposition. Today we'll be just exposing a different passage. We're going to be primarily in Romans 16, and so our ushers are passing out uh, Bibles if you need them, also note sheets and pencils. We hope that will be useful to you as we explore God's Word uh, and commit our hearts to living according to what we find in it. The aim of good preaching is the edification of the saints and the glorification of the God that the saints adore. And so to edify is to build up. But a key aspect of edification is fortification. We need to be built up, but we also need to be made stronger, sturdier, less susceptible to corruption and damage. And there is no better pathway to that kind of fortification, that kind of strengthening of the soul and of the mind, than through the sure and reliable testimony of God's Word to us. So our time together this morning is going to be spent in pursuit of that kind of edifying fortification. First, we're going to examine Romans 16, verses 17 through 20, which sets a general standard of vigilance for the believer, urging us to be aware of corrupting lies that threaten the faith of those who follow Christ. Secondly, we will look at the way that the text applies directly to how Christians are to think and speak about the sanctity of human life and the devastating lies that are being used to justify the abortion industry in our country today. And then thirdly, we're going to look to the author and the finisher of our faith, to Jesus Christ himself, for he is the standard bearer of truth and the ultimate purpose behind our commitment to protecting unborn life. And so our main text will be in Romans 16, as I said this morning. After a clear and thorough explanation of the gospel, Paul has already addressed the, the church in Rome and has shown them their need for the gospel. He has shown them uh, the devastating effects of sin and how it divides us from a right relationship uh, from God, how we are dead in our sins and trespasses and slaves to the slave master of sin apart from God. Then he has talked to us about the constitution of the gospel, what makes the gospel the gospel and how it has the power to save and redeem us. That is through the perfect life of Jesus Christ who took on flesh and dwelt with us that the law has been completely fulfilled and it is through death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ that our guilt which we have earned rightfully through our disobedience can be crushed and put to death forever through Christ. And so then he goes on to talk about the effect of the gospel that when we trust in Jesus when we give our lives to him and, and receive this amazing gift of salvation in Christ that it transforms us by the renewing of our mind. It makes us a different people. And then together as these people redeemed in grace, that we can live for the powerful testimony of Christ's truth and for his glory in the world. And so he's laid out these amazing things to the church in Rome. And then he's about to end up or end this great theological treatise. This letter is coming to a conclusion, but he leaves them this, with this one sobering warning of uh, potential danger for the church. And so that's what we're going to read today. We're in chapter 16. We look at verses 17 uh, through 20 for our, our, our meditation this morning. Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstructions contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. 
avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What an amazing way to end a letter to his friends, his brothers and sisters. The powerful truth that Paul has just spent 15 chapters laying out for these Roman Christians is not the only message being spread throughout the world, sadly. There are constantly ideas competing against the truth of the gospel. And Paul is very seriously concerned about the damage that those deceitful alternatives to the truth can do to the hearts and to the minds of those who confess Christ. And so in verses 17 and 18 of our text, Paul addresses the power of this deception. He says, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. So we see here from Paul's words that deception, especially in false teaching, causes division, doesn't it? And speaking of division here, Paul's not talking about fellow Christians who have a sincere respect for the word, but simply see a difficult text or doctrine in slightly different ways. That's going to happen, right? When Christ inaugurates the new heavens and the new earth, the limitations of our human intellect will be overcome so completely that God's people will be perfectly united under one true doctrine. We will say amen to the exact same truth. And the small variations that give rise to various denominations and associations today will no longer be a factor. Whatever we disagree on as true brothers and sisters in Christ will all be unified in one truth. But in the meantime, the nature of the church on earth is such that there will be continually room for debates and discussions regarding the finer points of our understanding of God's word. So that's not what Paul is, is really warning us about here. That kind of friendly discussion is not on his mind. Paul is warning of those who have been given the truth through the teaching of Christ and the apostles, but rather than testify to that truth, they have challenged it. They have tried to re-engineer it to mean something different from what it was meant to mean. When, when one body, and the church, friends, is described in various places in the New Testament as one organic body. When one body is working off of two different sets of facts, then clashes will occur. Distrust is bred amongst believers. People start to pick sides and stack up against one another. And so Paul, concerned for the unity of the bride of Christ, concludes the letter of the Romans by drawing our attention to the fact that deception and lies are ever looking for ways to penetrate the orthodox teaching that anchors the truth to Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel message. An example of this conflict was the focus of the letter of the church in Galatia. And I don't know if you recall this, about three or four years ago, we went through the book of Galatians. And Paul, in that book, Paul and the apostles had established a church in Galatia. The salvation um, that was taught there was to be found only in the grace given by Jesus Christ and in His perfect work on the cross. Not by a status that we earn through our good works or our religious deeds, 
But then others after Paul and these initial apostles came into Galatia and began to preach a different kind of doctrine, which they called the true gospel. They were known as the Judaizers, and they challenged the teaching of Paul and the others. The apostle Peter, who was in Galatia at the time, found himself stuck between two sets of facts, two different gospels, really. Do Gentile believers need to embrace the culture of the Mosaic law, of the Judaism uh, uh, that preceded Christ in order to follow Christ? That was the big question. The Judaizer, Judaizers said, yes, they do. If you want to be a believer and you're a Gentile, you've got to become circumcised. You've got to start offering sacrifices in the temple. You've got to come alongside all this Levitical law and follow it to the T. And that was different from what Paul and the other apostles had preached there. And so Peter even falls into the, the pitfall of this false doctrine and begins to treat these Gentile Christians, as if they are something less than his brother or sister in Christ. That's how convincing these false teachers were, that even an apostle who'd walk with Christ himself might be stumbled by this false teaching. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul describes the seriousness of the matter. He says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that's contrary to the one we preach to you, then let him be accursed. And that word literally means cut off from God. Paul boldly addresses Peter's sin and, and confronts him and urges him to repent. And thankfully, Peter does. He, he pulls back from this influence of the Judaizers and writes the ship. Deception threatens to sow division among the family of God. We need to be ready. And when the opportunity presents itself, we must stand against that kind of of false teaching and deception. Deception also creates obstacles to good doctrine. And that's something that we strive for. We strive to have good doctrine, meaning good ways of thinking about God's word and about God himself, good ways of obeying the scripture and the commands that he has given and living out the will of God in our lives according to those scriptures. Unbiblical views of who God is and what he expects of his people bring about confusion and distrust in the church. And they can frustrate believers into thinking that maybe the truth can't even really be known. In the church of Thessalonica, we see examples of this kind of confusion that has practical ramifications. You can see it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. The return of Christ had been preached there, and it should. It should be preached in the churches all over, that Christ will return for his bride. But the people there in Thessalonica we're seeing that return wrongly. The doctrine of Christ's second coming was being twisted as a means of justifying the sinful laziness of certain members in the church. Many there had quit working altogether. They had stopped tending to their practical responsibilities because they had decided that the return of Jesus was all that mattered. And there was no point in doing anything else since judgment was on its way. These brothers and sisters exploited the kindness and the generosity of those in the church who continued to work and strived, and, and so they lived off their charity. But this was causing a strain in the relationships between brothers and sisters who correctly held that the sure return of Jesus meant that we are to make the most of our time here on earth. While we wait, that we are to live peaceable and quiet lives, marked by the presence of, and power of the Holy Spirit, and that we're to take every opportunity until His return to steer others to the gospel, that prepares us for the return of our King Jesus. 
And so in, in that letter to the Thessalonians, the second letter, Paul sets that straight for them. You see, deception clouds and obscures the very beauty of God. For good doctrine is really a celebration of who God is and what he wants. Deceptive doctrine makes us think false things about the God that we worship and keeps us from beholding him in his true beauty. Debate itself is not the problem. Respectful, honest debate between brothers can be very healthy. Iron does sharpen iron. But when somebody reports or resorts rather to the twisting of the word of God in order to make their personal stance seem like the orthodox stance, then they are no longer testifying to God. They are offending him and assaulting his revelation. We've had a couple of really great Sunday school classes the last couple of weeks where we took some time to really break down Scripture into its finer points and to try to determine what exactly is this saying so that we could all get on the same page. And that's what Christians who are faithful to the Word should be doing, seeking to let the Scripture speak to us rather than trying to in, in, implant a meaning of our own into the text and simply using the Scripture to prop up our ideas. And so an appeal is made. and In other words, Paul is urging the church in Rome. He's giving them a very strong warning and he's counting on their sincere faith and desire to walk in Christ to cause them to take that appeal seriously. Paul makes an appeal to vigilance. I appeal to you, brothers. Watch out. Watch out. You see, deception is constantly contra. It is constantly against the church of God. Deception was not just a season that church had to go through in the beginning and then once they got over that, everything was smooth sailing from then on out. No, it is a, not a problem that the church solves once and then leaves behind itself. There are ever new variations of the age-old lies that threaten the integrity and the health of our doctrine. And so we put on the full armor of God every day to protect ourselves against the schemes of the devil, who is a master deceiver and is constantly setting traps of deceit and confusion that believers must take care not to fall into. We must anticipate this battle. And, and, and we need to get better at identifying deception so that we are not stumbled by it. There are two similar terms that Paul uses here to describe the kind of trickery that we should expect to run into as he describes the nature of this deception. He first calls it smooth talk. Smooth talk is where the form of a person's argument is quite impressive, even if the substance of the argument is not so much. Think of it like this. How many of us have seen fast food commercials? My kids were watching an, an old show with me. They're like, old TV just seems so old. Like when you had to watch commercials to actually get to the show you're trying to watch. Think about those old fast food commercials that we used to have for Burger King or McDonald's or whatever and how they will use every conceivable device to appeal to our senses to make us crave their product. And that's not always an easy thing to do because their product usually, if you're talking about fast food, is a subpar product. We see these actors and they're enjoying that food, that low quality preservative packed slop, but it seems like they are just loving it, right? They are just so happy to have this synthetic food, right? That they're just cramming it up. Oh, this, is a, this stuff is amazing. I can't get enough of this. And it seems like it's giving them such great satisfaction. 
And they describe this cheap food with such attractive language that our mouths begin to actually water for it. When we're watching the commercial, right? We jump in the car and we go to get some for ourselves. And then later that night, we lie in our bed and now it's our stomach talking to us. And the language our stomach is using is not smooth talk, right? <laughs> Rather, it is the language of regret. <laughs> that fast food was not satisfying as it seemed to be on the screen. On the surface, it had smooth appeal to us, but the substance ended up being far less beneficial. Deceit always looks better on the surface than it actually is. Always. Smooth talk beguiles us and makes us comfortable with something that should be alarming to us. When someone speaks so assuredly about something that we have been told not to trust, it can be tempting to let that salesman of deception change our minds and let down our guard. And we might find ourselves borrowing that salesman unfounded confidence in the lie that he's peddling. The second tactic, in addition to this smooth talk, is like the first, it's flattery. It's really not so different from smooth speech, but it has a more specific aim. The goal of flattery is not to get us to think highly of the lie itself, but to think more highly of ourself. So that when the words of our Lord oppose the lie that's being peddled, we might be so proud as to distrust the words of the Lord and instead put our faith in our own desires our own intellect, in our own tuitions, that we might trust the intelligent arguments of men rather than the impeccable declaration of the living God. Flattery makes you look more highly on yourself when our eyes as believers should be fixed on our Savior. Effective deception in the church often leverages a Christian's fear of the world against their fear of God. And so we find ourselves in these catch-22s at times, don't we? Where if we're going to do what the Lord has called us to do, we're going to look radically different from the world. And in the numbers, we start to do the math in our head, and we think, man, a lot more people would like me if I just did what the world was doing rather than doing what the Lord teaches me to do and compels me to do. And so in our minds, we begin to feel less confident that doing the things that God has called us to do is going to bring us joy and satisfaction. And the enemy will leverage that fear against us. And that's why again and again throughout the New Testament, you hear the apostles encouraging us not to fear man, not to be caught up and worried with the approval of the society within which we live, but to keep our hearts and minds fixed on this God who is our firm foundation of truth. Effective deception exploits the weaknesses of naivety, When we see it, we need to sound the alarm so that others are not caught up in this same trap. That is in the spirit of what Paul is doing here in Romans. He doesn't want his brothers and sisters there to not have thought about the danger that's all around them. He wants them to know about it. Yes, we have a shepherd that looks out for us, but the shepherd that protects us is also calling us to be cognizant and aware. When a sheep sees a wolf... They should not just keep chewing the grass and think, my shepherd's got this. But they should run away from the wolf. They should be alarmed by the wolf. And so this effective deception that Paul warns us against is something we need to be aware of. 
And as we read on, we see that there are intentional concerns connected to the issue of deception. Truth puts boundaries on our fellowship with others. Look at the scripture again in Romans chapter 16. Watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Take close note here. Paul's warning is not only look out for lies, right? That's inherent in the, in the command, but his, his, the real heart of what he's saying here is watch out for liars, for those people who would tell these kinds of lies. What we believe reflects on who we are as people. So avoid the doctrine of liars. Now, it doesn't say here to run from them. The word in the Greek, aklinite, means to turn away from them. That means you see their proposal, you consider it, and then you see it for what it is, falsehood, and you reject it. You turn away from that proposal, and you turn towards the sound words of truth. So avoid the trickery and the influence of those who do not have Christ's glory as their main driving motivation. Sin is something the believer battles against. But sin does not abound in the heart of a believer. Sin is something that a Christian may trip over from time to time. But it does not define the believer. It is not their joy. Sin does not really satisfy them. So a person who claims Christ but embraces clear sin over and over again is one of two things. They are either a naive believer who has been exploited by lies and needs to be liberated by those lies in the, to, into the truth of God, that's one option, or they are no believer at all. And they are in need of seeing that themselves. They are in need of being exposed as such so that others will not be deceived into following them into unbelief. We will return to this warning in Romans 16. But I want us now to take some time considering how this broad principle about the alarm of deception can be applied narrowly to the topic that is on our hearts and minds today. While this appeal to vigilance against deception is relevant to every aspect of our life in Christ, on this, which is the anniversary of the Roe versus Wade trial that has had such a, a terrible impact on the nation that we live in, it is appropriate for us to understand how that trial which legitimized abortion in America, how it is so deceptive. It would edify us to consider how this battle for truth plays out in the efforts of God's people to put an end to the institution of abortion. So a fundamental tactic in deception. This is something we need to, to pick up on. This will help to dispel some of that naivety. A, fund, a fundamental tactic in deception is to make a very simple and clear thing appear to be complex. In this case, that very simple and clear concept is, you shall not murder. If it is complex, if it can be argued that you shall not murder can be shown to be something very nuanced and complex and difficult to discern, then people won't want to invest the time to think about it. How many of you, when you signed the deed to your home, if you're a homeowner, um, 
which is likely one of the biggest purchases of your life, right? How many of you looked at that stack of complicated documents and you thought, I better read every single line of this? Ross, I love you, brother. You're one of a kind. <laughs> Most of us see the complexity and we think, I sure am glad that somebody who's trained in this is right here to make sure I don't mess anything up, but now's the time to just start putting my name on stuff, right? Maybe it was somewhere in between where you thought about some of the details and asked a couple of questions so you didn't look like you're blindly going forward, but you get what I'm saying. Complexity makes people just, uh, just try to trust someone who knows better. And the abortion industry would love for you to think that they know better about what, means, what human life really means. Fundamentally, this morning, we are not addressing a complex issue. Is murder wrong, yes or no? Yes. Any nation where murder was not punished seriously as a crime quickly ceased to be a nation. We can call this universally recognized throughout the world. Granted, capital punishment is a punishment for a crime, not a murder, right? A police officer who pulls his firearm in the line of duty and shoots an assailant is not a murderer. That's pretty clear to us. When a nation goes to war and the war is built on just premises, we're not dealing with something uh, that, that we could rightly call murder on a mass scale. But when it comes to simply choosing to end the life of another image bearer of God, we know whether or not there is a law on the books that that is wrong. It is shockingly wrong. So murder is wrong. We've, we've established that. Now let's take this a little further. Is murdering infants wrong? Yes. Yes, it is. We see the vulnerability of these little dependent lives. And our conscience makes it clear to us to murder a weak, fragile little human being is wrong. We have a name for people who think otherwise, and that name is sociopath, right? I remember a few years back, there were reports in China of the desperation of the people there causing individuals to go sickly into the, the grounds of preschools and try to stab to death as many children as possible. They don't allow their people to have guns there. So they were it was just mass stabbings of preschoolers. It happened three or four times. And that is sociopathic, broken behavior. We know that to be absolutely wrong. And everyone who read those reports was shocked at that. To murder an infant is wrong. So how do we get from universally embracing these two truths to living in a nation where it is not only permissible to do this, but your very tax dollars are being used to fund this kind of a heinous crime that we call abortion. In order to justify this madness, the simple must be made to appear complex. The truth must be twisted into nicely packaged lies that appeal to the individual's sin nature more strongly than their conscience appeals to their fear of Almighty God. So let us examine some of the key lies of the abortion industry that we might fortify our hearts against this crazy deceit. We're going to tackle the most pivotal lie first. This is a lie. The child in the womb is not yet a human being. This is a lie, and it is a lie upon which the abortion industry is founded. 
This lie is absolutely crucial to the sinful heart's desire to justify the eradication of unborn life. It was, in fact, one of the most important aspects of the Roe versus Wade case that led to the legalization of abortion on a national level. If the unborn baby is something less than a baby, less than a human being, then it can be put to death without disturbing the conscience. If it is just matter, or if we should look at that only as a potential human being, then now we can put that unborn child into a category that takes it out of the umbrella command that we all agree is wrong, which is do not murder, right? From Roe versus Wade, a tactic has been employed whereby the individual advocating for the legitimacy of abortion will go to great lengths to argue that an unborn baby is not actually a baby. You will almost never hear pro-choice advocates refer to the unborn child as a child or as a baby. They will almost universally use terms that sound far more clinical and sterile and cold. And they will work to emphasize that the child might, might be one day instead of talking about what that child is right now in the moment. So they will call that baby a fetus, or they will call that baby reproductive matter, or they will call that baby fertility uh, uh, tissue. God himself opposes that mindset because he affirms the personhood in Scripture. He affirms the personhood of the unborn child. So I want to show you some examples of that. Isaiah 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you, from the womb, I am the Lord, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who forms the unborn child in the womb. It is our Redeemer, the Lord God, who makes that baby. So we are not just talking about tissue or matter. We're not just talking about that human, something that human beings have produced through the re reproductive activity we are talking about something that God is forming in the womb to become an image bearer for him. Psalm 139, For you formed my inward parts. This is a prayer to the Lord. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So here we see God as creator. We're affirming Isaiah 44. And we see here also that which he has created is what? It is good. It is fearfully and wonderfully made. It is not a mistake. It is not an inconvenience. It is not a problem to be solved. It is a miracle. It is something beautiful, the work of God, God's hand. In Jeremiah 1.5, before Jeremiah the prophet is even born, God declares to him, I knew you before you were born, and I consecrated you to serve me as a prophet. How can that be so if Jeremiah doesn't even become a human until after he is born and draws his first breath? God does not commission non-people to be prophets. This is his work. This is his declaration. He treats Jeremiah as a human being, before he is born. In Luke 1.15, we learn that John the Baptist had the unique blessing of being filled with the Holy Spirit of God even from his mother's womb. 
When the angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah, John's father, and speaks of this little life to come, he says that Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, will conceive not a fetus or a potential person, but that she will conceive a son. And when Elizabeth, when Elizabeth conceives, Luke takes note that it was a baby in her womb. He uses those exact words. And that baby, not that matter or that fetus, that baby leapt for joy and was filled with the Spirit. So how's that possible if this little baby is not even a person yet? Is the Holy Spirit in the habit of filling things or people? The Holy Spirit is a gift to those who have been elected by God. It fills people, not things. And so, the Bible affirms what honest conscience has known for many decades. At the point of fertilization, the 23 chromosomes contributed by the male sperm are joined with 23 chromosomes contributed by the female ovum. The membrane barrier between the two breaks down and the resulting fertilized embryo, even at its very earliest stage, is now a unique 46-chromosome human being. All 23 human genes are present in that tiniest of organisms. Life is not something that begins later, at the eight-week stage when more recognizable human traits like limbs and a heartbeat are able to be observed, or later in the stages of development where a prematurely born baby might be able to survive outside of the womb. That is not what defines their personhood. From the very moment of conception, the fertilized egg is a unique and living human being. Question. If a baby is not a person at conception, then when is it a person? Who decides that fact? Are we willing to let the very critical affirmation of an individual's personhood and humanity rest in the hands of a committee of sinners, a group of scientists, a legal panel? A little history primer for you. In 1787, the founding fathers of this nation were creating the framework of the representative American government, which we live under today. And the framers came to an impasse over the discussion of who would be counted when it was determined how many representatives each state would have in Congress. Southern states that were still utilizing chattel slavery were adamant that slaves should be counted as people and they should have representatives for all of those slaves who are forced in work. Whereas the North was not inclined to include slaves in the numbering of representatives as they did not pay taxes and they did not have the right to vote. Much debate led to what is called the three-fifths compromise. The slaves in the South, who were people made in the image of God, were determined by a panel of the greatest minds in the nation to be counted as three-fifths of a citizen. Isn't that despicable? That these people, just because of their circumstances, were considered almost human, but not quite human. Politically, the slaves were considered by their fellow man to be less than a true man. And again, for political reasons, the scientific community has been called upon to convince the world that an unborn child is somehow less than the authentic human being made in the image of God that he or she actually is. Here's another question. If a baby is not a person at conception, then why does every 
expectant mother consistently refer to her unborn baby as just that, a baby? Is it just naive optimism? Why does the surviving mother mourn the loss of her child after a miscarriage? Is it merely the loss of potential personhood that ties her heart into knots? Is it the loss of what the child could have been that causes that expectant father to weep or wail? It is something more than that. We all know better. Our conscience bears witness to it. When a woman loses a baby to miscarriage, we do not comfort them by saying, it's okay. At least he wasn't a true baby yet. It was only still matter. It was, it was just reproductive potential. That would be the epitome of heartless cruelty to address a woman who had lost a child in that way. And yet, it would be perfectly consistent with the mindset that the unborn are not really humans yet, and they are only potentially human. Let us call this little unborn individual whose fate we are arguing over right now, let us call him what he is. Let us call her who she is. Let us call it a baby, a unique life containing DNA and gender and every building block that signifies a unique human being. We owe that tiny person, at the very least, the dignity of being called what they are and not something less than that. And when we collectively confess that it is not some unrelatable tissue that we're arguing over, but a legitimate human being, then the argument to justify the murder of that real human life becomes a lot more weighty and serious. I would suggest it becomes a mute point. So this is an absolutely heinous lie that's being pushed onto people, and it is at the core of the argument for pro-choice. Here's another lie, and there are many more than we'll be able to get to this morning, but I want to give you a few more before we conclude. It is a lie that it is loving to the mother to give her the right to end the life of her child. Some people would say, of course we love babies, but we can't not love the adult mother who has to strive with this difficult decision about whether to keep that baby and care for its needs or not. The commonly held ethic that we should do all that we can to eliminate a person's hardship and suffering is where this idea comes from. That when we tell a woman that she can abort her baby, that we're actually just being very loving to the mom. It's not so much that we're being wicked and cruel to the baby, we're being loving to the mother. Happiness is something that everyone deserves according to our society. But friends, freedom isn't free. It isn't, it isn't easy to be free. And it should not be more valuable to us, freedom should not, than the life of another human being. If there is a God and he commands us not to murder people, if he is a God of justice and will surely punish the wicked for their disobedience, if the wages of sin is death and sinners deserve the wrath of God, then the most loving thing we can possibly do is tell a young couple the truth. To terminate the life of an unborn baby is nothing short of murder. And because we love that person, we want to keep them from the devastation of being responsible for a sin of that magnitude. And if you were to join us on a Friday morning, friends, as we go down to the Planned Parenthood, you would find that many of those conversations start off with the person that we address and talk to feeling as if we are trying to enter into a battle with them. 
as if we have come so that we could make them feel like garbage. We have come to shame them and guilt them and to make them little so that we can raise ourselves up. But as they speak to us and as they hear our pleas to think about Christ and to think about the damage they're going to do to that baby and to their own conscience and their own self, they begin to see that we're not just there to make them look bad, but we're there because we love them. And to truly love a young woman and a young man who have conceived and perhaps are considering abortion, the best thing that we could do for them is to stand between them and that abortion mill. Because that is murder that they're walking towards. And to add sin to the sin of sexual interaction outside of wedlock does not make the situation better. It does not make the problem go away. It amplifies it. It makes it deeper. And it makes the hurt lasting. So let us urge people towards Christ and the forgiveness that can be found in Christ alone. Another lie. It is loving to end the life of a child if they are likely to suffer in life. And this is a tremendous lie being peddled by those who are pro-choice, as they like to say. Let me ask you a question, a scriptural question here, a little Bible trivia. What do Job and David and Elijah and Solomon have in common? Each had to suffer hardship and trial, and each in a moment of sad contemplation considered for a moment that it might be better for them if they had never been born at all. We have the record in Scripture. These are strange texts to read in the Bible, a book that is to codify the hope that belongs to those who trust in God. And each of these men I mentioned did trust in God, yet thought that it might be better for them to have been put to death before they were even born. Some who come to the defense of the practice of abortion appeal to the mercy that it shows the unborn child who would very likely be born into less than ideal circumstances. They might have to struggle through poverty and hunger. They might be kept back from some of the educational resources that other kids would get. They might be addicted to a serious drug. That little baby might have to be weaned off of Oxycontin. It might be, have to deal with the repercussions of fetal alcohol syndrome for the rest of its life. That baby might be put into a family of parents who are not ready to have a child and may even abuse that child. And so through these various means of justification, others have tried to make the simple concept very complex. And they've said, oh, it's not just so simple as murder. We're trying to spare this individual, this human being, from all of these multitude of hardships that they might have to endure. But there are very important differences between these men of the Bible I mentioned, wondering out loud if they should not have been born, and a young mother and father making a decision about whether or not their unborn child should be allowed to live. These men from Scripture were making that evaluation for themselves, weren't they? It wasn't someone else making that decision for them, outside of themselves. At what point do we turn over the right to say, this is too much for me to someone else and let them determine whether we should really be alive or not based on our struggles and suffering? Is that on a decision for God alone? And even if you don't believe in God, it, shouldn't it be a decision for the individual himself or herself? And I'd also like to add that not one of these men actually acted upon their despairing thoughts, did they? The Bible nowhere commends them for thinking so gravely about life. And in each situation, in fact, the life of the one who is suffering is in due time able to rejoice 
and speak of God's redeeming grace that brought them through those struggles and placed their feet on the solid rock of the Lord. So you can't appeal to those men who said, it would have been better for me to not be born and say, well, let's just keep these children from being born into bad situations. Because each of those biblical characters is a picture of the enduring love of God that carries us through trial and hardship. And maybe some of those babies will struggle. They don't all end up in a home like the Abedas, right? But they're alive. And the gospel message can be preached to that child. The gospel message can redeem somebody from the worst of circumstances. And I'm sure you know somebody who you look at their life today and you say, how did God do it? How did God take somebody who was so wrapped up in hurt and hardship and how did they bring them out of that and make them so functional and give them peace and joy and commitment? And the answer to that is on all of our tongues right now. It's through Christ. It's the redeeming power of Christ. It's not through ending that child's life. God is merciful, infinitely more so than we are. Let us leave the decision in his capable hands rather than trying to play God ourselves. If mercy is something we care about, then let us as a church collectively commit to being the solution to the poverty and the hardship and the addiction, the needs of that unborn child. Let us say, I will stand in the gap. My family will help. Our church will come around that individual. We will take up the slack. We will help that child have hope in a future. And if necessary, we will give them a home in our home. We will let that little child come and live with us so that they will not have to grow up with nothing. We will consider one more lie. Again, there are many more. We only have time to touch on some of the most common ones today. It is a lie that because of the dangers of overpopulation, it is socially irresponsible to allow these unplanned pregnancies to carry on. That is a very common argument made in our world today that look at the world around us. There's so much hardship going on and there's so much environmental destruction that humans are bringing upon the planet and there's so much overpopulation that it would be socially irresponsible to add to that burden by bringing new life into that situation. This argument is not new, but it has started to carry much more weight with people as two parallel lies are being embraced more and more frequently in the world today. The lie that overpopulation will exhaust the resources of the world and the lie that we are on the precipice of an ecological disaster because of the way that mankind is polluting the world. The roots of this lie go back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. In 1798, a man named Thomas Robert Malthus wrote an essay entitled The Principles of Population. And in that essay, he postulated that as industrialization creates more food, that's going to prompt people to have more kids. And the more kids that enter into the world, the harder it will be to keep up with demand for food, and it's going to create a catastrophe of economics that will cause so many to die in poverty and hardship. This is called the Malthusian complex or crisis. Here's the logic. The more people, the fewer resources, and the greater the strain upon the world. China, for many years, bought into this mindset and limited the expansion of its own population to one child per couple. This began in 1980 and was only recently rescinded in 2020. I don't know if you knew that, but echoes of this policy uh, continued until 2020. Did it curb the growth of population in China? Oh, it absolutely did. The one-child policy, along with early forced sterilization of certain 
sections of society, think about that for a moment, have led to an estimated prevention of approximately 400 million lives in China. It also led to some of the greatest human rights violations in recent history. The desire for male offspring amongst that, uh, that masculine-dominated society created a huge increase in the abortion of female babies. When sex-specific abortions were outlawed in response to this in China, many couples decided that they would just not get any prenatal care. They would not go and get an ultrasound so that the government would be kept out of the loop. And then when their baby was born, if it was a, a, a little girl, they would just put it out into the exposure. They would, they would drown the baby. And they would bury it in the forest, and they would try for a boy. This has happened under the watchful eye of a, of a world that claims to want what is best for society. All of this paranoia about population control and environmental pollution is largely misplaced because Malthus' theories were penned during a time when the world was still a largely agriculturally based society. Advancements in food production and in creating cleaner, more efficient manufacturing have far outpaced the strain that growing populations have placed on the world and its resources. Despite what many dystopian pictures of the future we have seen in Hollywood, like movies like Terminator and The Matrix, which paint a horrible and dusty and sooty picture of the future, the reality is that the world is a cleaner place today than it was 100 years ago, a much cleaner place. And we have the technology and the capacity to provide food, more than enough food, and resources for the whole world if we would simply prioritize the well-being of our neighbor. We have the advancements to give to all who have need. And beyond all of that scientific evidence, which is great, but really doesn't matter the most, Genesis 1.21 matters more. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the waters in the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. He went on to say in, in other parts of that chapter that, that it is the, the mandate of man to be fruitful and to multiply. And so we must consider God's will in this. He has not rescinded this call. He has not said, you're done. The earth is filled enough. If he would, then we would gladly consider the size of our families. But as long as God is saying that we are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, then a baby should not be seen as a burden or as a cancer upon society. It should be seen as a blessing, as God's gift to humanity. And right now, many of these nations that were trying to curb the advancement or the overpopulation in their nations have realized that they are on a, on a drastically dangerous trend the other way, that they will not have enough people to supply the needs of their nation because they are reproducing so slowly. So broadly, the church needs to be aware of these dangers of deception. Specifically, we can see the sinister impact that has had on how we cherish human life. And if people think clearly and honestly about abortion, then far fewer people would be alone or would be able to embrace it. Even those who pay no regard to the love of the Lord have the shadow of God's law written upon their conscience. If an individual is committed to sin, then one of the most loving things that we can do for them is to undo their own efforts to placate that conscience through self-deception uh, and false justification. We need to tell the truth, church. If the heart can be convicted of sin, then perhaps repentance is not far away. Ultimately, there is only one thing that overcomes the dark deception of these arguments, and that is the light of Christ. And that is why in verses 19 and 20, it says, For your obedience is known to all. Obedience to who? To Jesus. So that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good, 
and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Do we serve the Lord or do we serve our own appetites, friend? Many are slaves to their own desires, to their own comforts, and even to their own freedoms. Have we been so willing and eager to get what we want for ourselves that we would let an innocent baby pay the price for that convenience? Are we wise about what is good? And are we innocent as to what is evil? When he says wise to the good there, essentially that's pointing to the gospel. Do we know Christ? Do we know why we are here to glorify him and to show honor to him through the way that we build our families and the way that we grow the church and edify the saints in their belief and trust in the commands of Christ? Are we wise to what is good? And are we innocent to evil? This doesn't mean that we are ignorant to evil. Those are different words. Rather, do you know enough about evil to identify it, to turn away from it, as Romans uh, 16 instructs? The believer's assurance is this, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath our feet. He is a God of peace. But those who seek peace are not those who run from conflict. Rather, those who truly seek peace are the ones who are willing to fight against that which threatens true peace. Our God does just that. And as his people, we are called to stand likewise against the deceptions of the world that are swirling about us. So if you are interested in being a part of that battle, then pray for these unborn children. Pray for the hearts of Americans to be convicted, to see what a travesty the millions of unborn being slaughtered legally under our noses is, that it's going to be such a dark and bloody stain upon the history of America. Let us repent of these things and urge others that we know to do the same. Volunteer at the clinic ministry that we do on Friday mornings or at a different ministry, if you want, that, that speaks out against this and shows a path to hope rather than the path of despair that these young families are walking to as they enter into those doors to be made murderers of. Give to Options Health and organizations like that that provide care and resources for these young families so they can see that there are different ways that they can go about this, that they can be supported so that they can care. Talk to Akasha Molekish, who's, who's coordinating for us Anyone who wants to be a part of the care of foster children and adopted babies in our congregation so that perhaps even more of our families uh, will, will be convicted to want to be a part of the solution. The Kessners are just now getting certified and hopefully will, God willing, receive a baby in the next few months. What a beautiful solution to a problem that could end so tragically. Be a part of this solution. God calls us to do so. This God of peace will soon crush Satan. And who is he? Who is Satan? but the father of lies, the king of deception. He will crush him under our feet. Do you believe that? Is that only a future promise or is he accomplishing that this very day as we speak the truth boldly right now and dash the lies of the world to the side? Has he not been bringing about some sort of conviction in your hearts this morning as you think about these lies that maybe some of us have even thought were legitimate before today? Our God is a judge. And you don't want to find yourself under his foot one day, so repent of your sin and seek the Lord, for he is merciful and good. And even those who have fallen into this trap and have, have become guilty of this kind of murder themselves can be set free from it. The apostle Paul was a murderer himself, and yet is here so redeemed that he is preaching the truth of redemption to his friends in Rome. Jesus is the surest steady rock upon which our confidence is founded. This week our, our e-blast that goes out, uh, had an article that was linked to it that was long, but it was very good. 
is by a theologian named Bob Gonzalez. He writes excellently and clearly. And it had to do with the Christian stance on a very familiar uh, topic, something very relevant to what we're talking about today, which is the idea of stem cell research and whether that's a justifiable means of essentially abortion as these little embryos are being manufactured and then put to death for scientific reasons. Now that discussion is a parallel concern to what we're talking about, and I wanted to end with a quote that Pastor Bob laid out in his argument. He said, according to the Bible, all human beings, male or female, black or white, adult or child, rich or poor, handicapped or healthy, Christian or non-Christian, are created as the image of God. This is what gives every human being dignity and worth. Secular humanism strives to exalt men. Yet in the end, it leaves him with no more dignity than an earthworm or a goldfish. Christianity, on the other hand, humbles man, yet it also gives him dignity. And because of this human dignity, because of the sanctity of human life, we must never unlawfully take the life of another fellow image of God. Amen. Brothers and sisters, be on the alert. Guard yourselves against the deceitful arguments that would persuade you to think like the world instead of thinking the thoughts of God after Him. Learn to identify the lies that are being pushed upon us today and stand against, against them with the sure declarations of God's steady word. Let me close this with a word of prayer. We're gonna, I'm, I preached so long today, I apologize. I had so much more to say too. I got like a thousand words out of that sermon, but we needed to hear those things. So let me have a word of prayer with us, and then we're going to uh, rejoice in the reception of two new members this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for life. We praise you, God, that we have so frequently been able to rejoice with those who have had a new baby born into their families, Lord God. We've even been able to rejoice in the adoption of some little ones into families in, in your care. And so praise you, Lord God, for being the, the one who creates and the one who gives vitality, and the one who quickens, Lord God, all of these are your activities. And so help us, Father, to be honest with ourselves. And we can't really do that without your instruction, Lord God. So let the word declare what is true and help us to be bold in our proclamation of what is true, Lord God. May sermons like this preached throughout the world today affect the hearts and the minds of Christians who have taken this lightly in the past, who have not seen the importance or how relevant this is to the gospel message is absolutely relevant. For these are your little ones, Lord God. And how can we expect you to bless your people if we are murdering your little ones before they even breathe? And so, Lord God, please forgive us and have mercy upon us. Lord God, convict us in the ways we need to be convicted. And if we need a chastisement, Lord, then please do not hesitate to, to give it to us. Father, may these words that can sting be words also that heal as we consider the great power of Christ to overcome every sin that we have committed. You are good and holy and we praise you and ask these things in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.